Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From my own house, I could hear, you know, the Azans mobilizing uh, people to come out onto the streets. Um, there were jets flying overhead. There were bullets in the street. I, you know, I could certainly hear from my own window. Um, and people basically, you know, confronted the tanks and told the soldiers to go home. And eventually they did. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Many people may not realize, but Turkey is actually a relatively new country. It's just shy of 100 years old. It was created as a republic out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, and largely by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who stuck around as president until 1938. Since then, there have been elected governments, military coups, and now, well, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and our guest will make sure I pronounce that properly, has reshaped the country in his own likeness, or at least how he likes. To help us make sense of it all, we've invited Andrew Finkel onto the show. Finkel has been a journalist based in Istanbul since 1989, corresponding and freelancing for a variety of print and broadcast media that has included the New York Times, The Times, which, by the way, is the London Times, Time, The Economist, The Guardian, The Observer, CNN, and the Financial Times, as well as Turkish-language media. His popular handbook, Turkey, What Everyone Needs to Know, is published by OUP in 2012. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for for asking me to, 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 to talk to your listeners. So, what's it like to live in Turkey right now? Would you call it a free country? No, um, but I suppose the thing is, it's never been free. I mean, it's there's um, I don't know if you're I don't know if you can hear the azan, the, the, the call to prayer in the background here. So at least it shows that I really am in Turkey, not not in the, in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> well, difficult to answer because there's always been restrictions on public life, restrictions on politics. Um, but I think. The, these restrictions have anything been becoming much more intense in the last two, five years. Um, um, and, uh, it's become something of a, of a problem to Turkey's development, I believe. Well, um, 
Can you sort of talk about Erdogan and sort of what role he's had in the change? Well, you did pronounce it reasonably correctly. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is the now president, formerly prime minister of Turkey, was started his life as the his political career as the mayor of Istanbul in the mid 90s um, and um, was mayor at a time when there was uh, his party, which was uh, a religious orientated party, had was really sort of frowned upon and was undermined by um, the establishment, the military establishment. Um, and he did his very best to overcome those obstacles, despite a brief time in, in prison. And I think his sense of having countered, as it were, attempts to keep him out of politics, to keep him out of public life, including this this short spell in prison uh, for reciting a poem at a public rally, has, I think, in his mind, justified his own tactics, which has basically been to um, push doors wide open when they're a bit ajar and to sort of continue to make progress in taking the reins of power into his own hands until now he's become a president with really unchecked uh, presidential powers, uh, executive powers. Um, one of the um, uh, key uh, events which allowed him to do this was a failed military coup, an attempted military coup in 2016 in July, and which he used as an opportunity to impose a two-year period of martial law, not martial law, of of, uh, emergency law, uh, to rule by decree. Um, So now we see most aspects of of Turkish life, the judiciary being the most important, perhaps, but the press coming a close second, which is very firmly under the control of the government, and and it's the brave judge or or the unwise journalist who really makes a point of, of going against um, the, the ruling party or, or Mr. Erdogan himself or his family. Just to give people a little bit of background, if you could, Turkey it was a very secular state, right? I mean, it's um, Muslim predominantly, but um, the state set up by Ataturk was supposed to be very secular. Is that correct? Well, it's correct and not correct. It's, it's a, a state in which... Um, uh, religion has been instrumentalized in which religion has really been under the control of the state, but being under the control of the state doesn't mean that it was purely secular. So you have, um, as you had in the Ottoman Empire, you, you had a, a Sheikh of Islam, you had a, you know, a, a state appointed Islamic cleric. Um, in the Republic, you have had a state-appointed director of religious affairs who basically, um, you know, kept his eye on religion. So it's it's not so much a, that it's a secular state, it's a state in which religion is kept under the control of the state. Um, and um, under the, the current government, we've seen a vast expansion in the powers and influence of the director of, of religious affairs. So perhaps religion is more prominent, the... the Certainly the early Republicans were much more skeptical, much more um, mocking, I suppose, of the religious observance of of, of the, the people. And that indeed was used against them as a, as a populist means of other political parties coming to power. But this is, you know, this this 
there is certainly a section of society which regards itself as secular, or which would like to see religion, you know, um, not so prominent in public life and just, you know, confined to the private beliefs of its citizenry. Um, but that is, is um, certainly less and less the case uh, in contemporary Turkey. Can you give us the background on the 2016 coup attempts? Like, who were the players? What happened? How did it shake out? Um, my strongest memory uh, from that, watching it, is Erdogan, I believe on Facebook Live, uh, broadcasting, saying that he was still in power, uh, and then nothing, nothing, nobody, nobody had taken him down or was going to take him down. Um, and I remember watching it at the time and thinking, like, oh, this isn't a good look. Uh, you know, uh, the leader of a country kind of making his case to the people via social media while the tanks kind of encroach, but he he won, right? And what was the aftermath of that? Well, it's a it's certainly a curious uh, incident and one which you know we have we certainly have an official version of what happened, but we because you know the press is under. The control is under that, you know, very closely monitored in Turkey. We haven't had, you know, many independent voices sort of going around and nosing around to find out exactly what happened. Um, many commentators, including myself, I, I, I am embarrassed to admit, had said that a, a, a military coup in Turkey was was not possible in, in, in a society as complex as Turkey and in which, you know, how do you, you know, in the old days you could occupy the radio station, but, but you know, how do you occupy the social media? How do you, you know, how, how can you control a population in a modern state or just sort of impose your will over them um, um, in, with a with a tank in front of in front of a, a public building? It, it just wouldn't work, I don't think, and the economy was so complex that any, you know, attempt to really control Turkey by force wouldn't result in the impoverishment of its people and, and that, you know, the coup makers would have to bear that responsibility. So I never thought that such a coup was possible. Um, but I suppose in a, in a way I was right because it failed. Um, and what, um, appears to have happened that night is that there was, um, certainly a faction within the military. That faction, the government very strongly says, was uh, manipulated and controlled by an exiled uh, cleric, someone who lives in the United States in, in upstate um, Pennsylvania called Fethullah Gulen, um, who had had a fairly widespread and powerful movement in Turkey and then clearly was attempting to move his people and his followers into influential positions within the government. Um, at a, you know, at a, at a very early state, well, not at an early stage. At one point, they had been supporters of the government. The government, uh, they, they, these, these were people who basically recruited and and made their influence known by having a a network of schools both inside Turkey and abroad, and so they tended to be sort of more sophisticated, better educated than um, the government's own supporters, and were put in positions of power, um, possibly in the military as well. So um, increasingly, uh, Erdogan began to see them as a rival to his own power, as a, a sort of state within a state, um, and made various decrees, methods, put pressure on them, basically to, to make their life very difficult. So it is entirely plausible, though, you know, that, that we, we only have... Um, 
you know, who knows what the actual reality was, but it's, it, it seems very plausible that certainly one of the factions trying to overthrow the government was these, this disgruntled, uh, sect, which had once been very powerful, uh, and was no longer so powerful. Um, they, the coup, they seem to have not been particularly good at, at, at making coups, whoever was responsible. Um, the, the, the plot went off early. It should have gone off at, you know, after, after midnight when everyone was in bed and people would wake up to a coup. Instead, it, um, it seems that the government got wind of it. It, it, um, maybe even sort of, uh, allowed it to unravel in a controlled fashion so that they could control it. Um, and of course there are many people who think it was a false flag operation that there, that there wasn't really a coup at all, or at least there was only a, a little bit of a coup and that the government played it to their advantage. But as I say, we don't really know exactly what happened that night. Um, but certainly what did happen was that there was a great popular uh, reaction to it. Um, um, you know, from my own house, I could hear, you know, the Azans mobilizing, uh, people to come out onto the streets. Um, there were jets flying overhead. There were bullets in the street. I, you know, I could certainly hear from my own window. Um, and people basically, you know, confronted the tanks and told the soldiers to go home. And eventually they did. Um, and so the next morning, the, the coup was really a complete collapse, a complete failure. There really wasn't. Um, the popular support for it, and then the people had really um, bravely had 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 um, told this incredibly stupid coup plotters to 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 mind their own business. Um, and so the after, but in the aftermath, of course, there was a huge crackdown on the Gulen movement or anyone whom the government could really identify as an opposition member and and. And brandish and brand as a as a member of the Skulena sect. So, in the aftermath of the coup, there there was a huge, you know, crackdown. People, was, I think, 150 publications were shut down. You know, 100. I think the figure was 170. 150 journalists were initially arrested. Um, scores of civil servants, military people, teachers. People in every walk of life suspected of having Gulenist affiliations were, were dismissed. So there was a, you know, there was a very much a sort of purge of public life. And, and the result of that purge, I think, is that the government uh, has emerged much more powerful than, than before. Can you, uh, explain who Gulen is? Because I think that's pretty important to the story and to Erdogan's, uh, power. Because in many ways, uh, the Turkish, like he's kind of this boogeyman, right? Can you kind of give us the background on him? Well, I, I, I did meet him once um, <laughs> at the opening of a, of a bank. Um, one of his, <laughs> one of the, not really a bank, a sort of non-interest bank, uh, which is which is um, his 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 followers were opening. Um, he essentially was. Um, I have to say I don't know his life story all that well, but he was a a cleric who who had a following, um, um, you know, very much a firebrand teacher. Um, um, he had sort of two sides to him. He 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 could be a very emotional and powerful and moving uh, speaker in front of his own followers, but he was very diplomatic and um, um, you know. Uh, uh, 
statesmanlike in other contexts. I mean, the, the one time I met him was, at, I said, at the opening of this bank. And this was when they were, the group was at their heyday. And that present at, the, at this opening was the mayor of Istanbul, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, um, the, one of the, the man who was to become the president of the republic under within Erdogan's party, uh, Abdullah Gul, um, um, Tansu Chiller, who was the finance minister at the time. So, you know, many politicians courted the influence which he had over over the over his public, and he essentially had this strategy of, you know, basically building institutions, which I think was you know, and, and working within the state, which was a sort of novel approach. Um, um, Certainly, I mean, there have been many what they call tariqat sects, you know, um, um, uh, religious orders within Turkey. But this one seemed to be particularly successful in as much as it embraced modernity and, and uh, um, you know, was very sort of nationalist, Turkish nationalist in its own way. But, but you know, very much about you know, educating, you know, recruiting the best and the brightest and educating them and getting them into positions of, of, of power. So it was, it was quite a, you know, a, and, and a shrewd operation. Of course, it was worldwide. There were Gulenist schools and you know, plenty of them in America. I think there still are. Though. I think, you know, at one point there were a hundred some odd countries which had these Gulenist schools. And the, the government sort of relied on this Gulenist movement as a sort of, cultural ambassador to, to, to various countries. So, you know, typically a Gulenist school would open up in, I don't know, Senegal or the Ivory Coast and, 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 um, yeah, the, the, this would be followed by, you know, the opening up of a Turkish consulate, the opening up of a, of a flight agreement with the, the national airline, uh, and the you know, Turkish businessmen would come in and out. So they were very much a sort of, what appeared to be um, an element of Turkish soft power, and 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 um, to which on which the government at the time relied on, but I guess they had too much power, uh, and possibly history. You know, when when we finally get to see the documents and understand exactly what went on the on the night of July fifteenth, two thousand and sixteen, perhaps they abandoned soft power for hard power. Um, but it, it's a, a curious story. Uh, Fethullah Gulen is still alive, living in Pennsylvania, <laughs> I think, um, which is which is uh, a very odd thing. I mean, I, I remember participating in a 60 Minutes program, and 60, you know, the 60 Minutes researchers had spent you know months and months trying to dig the dirt up on on you know this man and what his influence was and why he was you know so powerful and what he was doing in America. And if, the end of the day, the, the the story they presented was, you know, well, is, was a sort of Ripley's believe it or not. Here is this, you know, cleric who has all this power, and believe it or not, he lives in, you know, the Pennsylvania Dutch country. <laughs> you know, that was it was that was that was sort of the best they could do. So, so you know, it was a fairly you know movement which kept its own counsel, I suppose. It's interesting because from the point of view of the United States. First of all, there's the refusal to extradite him to Turkey, and Turkey's been trying to get him uh, returned to that country for years now, right? Um, it's so hard to really understand the story 
and I, so I'm, I'm really grateful that you told it. It just seems like a, you know, weak old man who's being hounded. I think a lot of people in the United States looked at it that way. Um, uh, yes, I suppose. I mean, I, I have to say I was, you know, never under his spell. So I have no, I don't really quite understand what the charisma that he's meant to have had and the attraction that allowed him to, to, maintain this this huge following and maybe my turkish isn't good enough i don't know but but um um uh, he, he, you know he clearly did have a very loyal and, and religious following i mean at one level it was you know what he represented was a sort of what used to people used to call you know moderate islam or whatever i mean he he one of his messages, certainly at one point in, in, the, in the movement's uh, history, was that of religious tolerance, and so they would, you know, they would have these breakfast meetings at the, in the month, during the holy month of Ramadan, and he, they would have meetings, and they would invite as many people from as many different walks of life as possible, and the, the chief rabbi and the, the the ecumenical patriarch, Greek Orthodox patriarch. Um, um, or the, the Armenian patriarch, they would all be invited to this dinner as evidence of this great tolerance. And, and, um, I, I can, you know, I can, um, I can remember, and sadly he died, but I can, the, the, the Armenian patriarch at the time in this in Turkey was, you know, I remember meeting him once at the beginning of the year and he said, isn't it great all this, you know, um, um, tolerance and this and that and the other thing and, and, and understanding. And then I ran into him again at the end of the year. And I think basically to paraphrase, he said, if someone mentions the word tolerance once more, I think I'll throw up, you know, um, so, so there, you know, there was a sort of, I don't know, this, this, this certainly belief in tolerance was also very much to create a space for Islamic observance in public life in Turkey where it had not, been able to so you know it, there was a point in Turkish history not all that long ago when when you know women couldn't wear headscarves and have a higher education or couldn't get a job in a in a public office if they dressed in Islamic uh, um, um, garb so so you know clearly there they there was a sense of grievance which which they also uh, not just the Gulen movement but the government itself um, um, represented. Can we talk for a minute about the press? One thing, one thing that we read about in the States um, all the time is a newspaper being shut down or another newspaper being shut down or dozens of newspapers being shut down. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be a journalist there and also what it takes to run a newspaper in Turkey? Um. Yes, I can. I mean, they're not. You don't read about it so much anymore because they've all been shut down. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yes. I mean, well, l- l- let me go back a bit. I mean, this is a, the subject sort of dear to my heart. Um, I mean, basically, the Turkish press has never been, you know, the, the, the sort of standard bearer of truth and objectivity and holding, you know, power to, 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 to account. It's, there, there's always been an element of compromise with authority and people, you know, trading headlines for land deals and cheap state land and privatization contracts. So that, you know, basically as the, as the press retained more 
became more influenced, particularly during the 1990s when there was a, un, a series of unstable coalitions. And, you know, the press barons really did have a great deal of brokerage power and used that brokerage power both to, to, um, um, you know, um, put governments in power, but also to sort of promote their own, own non-media business interests. Um, but my, you know, the metaphor I use is that it would say basically the, the media during the 1990s was a bit like, you know, the sort of corrupt policeman. You, 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 you know, if you're, if you're a crooked cop all the time, you go to jail, you know, you, but if you're, but you, so the thing about a corrupt policeman is that they know when to be corrupt and when to be, and when to uphold the law. It's, you know, it's an art. You do, you, so in order to be able to sort of peddle influence, you have to have influence in the first place. So you have to have some sort of integrity. You know, you have to have a sort of modicum of integrity. Otherwise nobody buys your newspaper and therefore nobody respects you or, or that, that newspaper doesn't have any power. So it's a, you know, it was a balance which the Turkish media was very, you know, adept at, 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 at maintaining. Um, you know, what I, I suppose, you know, the most interesting thing is that, is that this government came to power in, certainly in, at, at elections in 2002 without any really major press support at all. I mean, they, they basically had no large media backing. Um, the reason they got into power was, again, not because they, they tapped into the religious sentiments of, of, of the people, but because there was a huge economic crisis in 2001 and, 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 uh, people were seriously impoverished and there was a wholesale rejection of the, the whole post-war generation of politicians. Um, and, and, um, um, uh, so, so, you know, basically you had one of the, the, the things was these media barons in the, certainly in the 1990s, it was very lucrative to have a banking license because there were such high rates of inflation that if you had that basically a, a banking license was you would take money from depositors, you would lend it to the government and collect the spreads in between. And it was, you know, as I mean, basically you and I could have been a banker in, in those days. It was a fairly straightforward, forward um, business. Um, but what happened in 2001 is that there was this huge uh, devaluation crisis. Suddenly banks couldn't repay their the money they borrowed in foreign currency. And so a third of GDP just sort of evaporated in these failed banks. And many of these banks, of course, were owned by newspaper proprietors and, and um, those proprietors quite rightly not simply lost their banks, but also lost their newspapers um, because the, the board, which was overseeing the public debt, basically took the assets of these people. So, so you had, you know, you had banks and newspapers with, you know, $1 billion of worth of debt, $3.6 billion worth of debt, huge numbers in, a, in a, an economy at the time, which was, you know, maybe a quarter of a, uh, $250 billion. So, so, um, in basically there was, there was very little respect for the media and certainly very little respect within the government for the media because, you know, the, these were people who had betrayed them and betrayed the country. Um, and, and, um, you know, the, 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 there was really very little popular empathy with, de with defending uh, media and the, media, the, the freedom of the press. So this is, you know, this is quite a, Good warning to lots of other countries, I think. Um, 
Um, and what happened was, of course, when these when the media assets were taken over by the by the banking regulatory agency, they were redistributed. And funnily enough, money many of the large media groups went into supporters of the government and cronies of the government and people who build airports and get government contracts and you know uh, whatever. So. Um, Suddenly, from having an oppositional press, you had a press that was, I think, you know, the expression people use is captured, a press that was captured by the government. So, you know, um, by the mid 90s, uh, sorry, by the mid 2000s, you know, you basically the government from having no loyal press group to back it had, you know, a very substantial uh, uh, coalition of media at its disposal, including the state run media and the, the um um, the Anatolian agency, the, 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 the quasi-state uh, news agency, semi-independent um, news, a- news agency, now really not semi-independent at all. Um, and the government continued to consolidate those gains and consolidate and make it really much more difficult for um, independent newspapers to uh, survive. So, Essentially, you know, uh, stop me when this gets boring, by the way. Um, um, <laughs> um, you know, newspapers worldwide, the media worldwide is, was, was facing a particular crisis that, that, you know, as the internet became more prevalent, people were less inclined to pay for content. So it became more and more difficult to, um, you know, keep the media afloat because, because, you know, the people didn't want to pay for, for for the papers anymore because they could, you know, just click on a on a on a web page. Um, well, you don't have to tell us about that. Uh, exactly. Same exactly. thing in the United States. And Matthew and I have worked at enough publications that are on their way out. <laughs> um, I, I realized it, tapping into a, a tale of what, but but you can see in Turkey this was compounded because not simply were you facing an industry that was being devalued worldwide but but the 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 corrupt media the pro-government media had a particular advantage because they didn't really need to make money out of their newspapers they could you know they the media was a lost leader for the airport they were building or the contract they were getting so it was so they they really had no incentive to be independent or 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 or, uh, critical at all um and of course this but and then this um Escalated. Then we again. If you want to ask another question and stop this, uh, do do. But but um, I have a I have a follow up. But I want you to finish your thought first. Okay. But well, you know, I, my thoughts go on for quite a while. So you you, you be careful what you wish. Um, I mean, the the the, 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 the I think a, a critical point in this development was in 2013 and 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 around this time of the year in 2013. When there was a public protest in support of a of maintaining a, a, a park in the middle of Istanbul, Gezi Park, stopping it from being developed into a, into a shopping mall, um, and there was an occupation, and, and um, suddenly, you know, you 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 at one point that occupation was was fairly brutally um, put to an end, um, and. You know, the, the, this this sort of unrehearsed, spontaneous movement in 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 the middle of the city really posed a sort of ontological threat, I think, to 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 the government, who sort of thought that history was on their side, that everything was going their way, and then suddenly here was this movement which they didn't they didn't understand and couldn't control. 
Um, and of course, the, 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 the weapon that these, the, these street protesters had was social media, which was something that hadn't really, you know, dawned, I think, upon, on Turkish politicians before then. So, you know, there's, you know, the, the number of tweets per second was, was, you know, fantastic. And people, you know, would know that there was a Panzer car waiting around that, that, that corner because, you know, they could see it on their social media. So suddenly you have this, you know, this confrontation between, between a government which was successful in capturing the old heritage media being faced with social media, which it just really didn't understand and couldn't come to terms with. Um, and at one stage, Twitter was banned before the general election, I think in 2014. And you had YouTube, which was, was banned for some specious reason for two years. And I mean, we, we even had, I mean, Wikipedia was, was, was access was being denied to Wikipedia until really quite recently after a two and a half year, um, hiatus. Um, so the, you know, suddenly the battleground shifted and, and public, you know, how, how public opinion is created and it, we shifted as well. So, you know, the, the new, you know, there's no point. Again, it's like my, my metaphor is, you know, Midas and the golden touch or whatever. He could, you know, he could turn everything he wanted into gold, but, but that included the food he needed to nourish himself. But so, you know, but if you can control the media, but you can't really ensure that when you control the media, that it still acts as a conduit of information in a way of influencing people's opinions. So at, the, at present, you know, post, you know, coup, post, post attempted coup, post a series of events, the government controls maybe 80 or 90% of branded media in Turkey. And yet at a municipal election last year, they pretty much lost every major city in the country, you know, and, and I think, you know, so, so how does this happen where you control everything, but control nothing? Is this something that you feel in your day to day? Like, is it, do you feel like you're in danger doing your job? Is it something that you worry about? Are you kind of, do you, you pick your words carefully? Um, well, my job has changed lately. I mean, I'm no longer the, the boy correspondent I was uh, when, when we first met. Um, uh, I, 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 I work with an NGO at the moment and one of other things that we do is to try and defend independent media and try and get journalists, you know, who are in jail and draw attention to their, their situation, try and get them out of jail, people who don't belong in jail and try and get justice, you know, the justice system to work. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really, you know, engaged in, in, in day to day reporting in the way that I was. So I didn't, I didn't have that problem, but I think, you know, I think what I, you know, I'm, I'm close enough to the ground to see what happens and to see what happens with other people. And I, I think, you know, there was a point, I think when, you know, Turkey was this boom uh, economy when everything seemed to be going the right way and, you know, lots of people were coming here, including, hundreds of young freelance reporters and, and, you know, Turkey, you know, it was like sort of, I don't know, Paris after the war, Prague after, you know, after the liberation of, of after the, the breakdown of the, of the uh, Eastern Bloc, you know, there are the, some cities have their moments of great, you know, resurgence and revival. Um, um, yeah, I, I can remember sort of being asked by the Observer newspaper one year to write this, you know, piece about, you know, 
Istanbul boom town, you know, and, and you know how, how people would come here from San Francisco and you know have to be dragged onto the plane at four in the morning because you know. And the, the, the following year, the Observer asked me to write a piece in which they said, "Oh, you know, the, the you know, the, the cities become unmanageable. You know, why don't you write a city a story about that?" So I, I, I you know, it, it, so one, you know, one year you're you're on the, on the riding the crest of the wave, and the next year you're in the in the in the in the trial. Um, um, uh, basically you have this huge community of freelance journalists, but then of course now they find they found it impossible to operate and they all left, uh, or quite a lot of them left, but they're still a fairly large journalistic community. Um, so I think the point is that if you have a large newspaper behind you, if you know, if you're the FT correspondent and you're right to the economist in the New York Times or whatever, you, you, um, you know, you, you enjoy a certain, Immunity and protection because of the newspaper you're writing for. Um, but, you know, not a, if you're, if you don't have that protection, then you're much more vulnerable. Um, there hasn't, there hasn't been that much, um, directed against foreign correspondents. Uh, occasionally it does happen. Um, not a, a photographer here who you know, happens to have some pictures on his, on his, you know, camera from two years ago or something. Um, uh, there, there have been attempts to, to, um, intimidate the foreign press, um, and, and foreign correspondents. Yeah, I would, I would say that that's a, we've had quite a few, uh, correspondents, war correspondents, foreign journalists that have come on the show. Um, and I would say that there's a, there's a through line with Turkey, uh, and everyone has a Turkey story. No one wants their Turkey story to be told uh, on the air. Everyone always tells it after we get off the call. Um, and I've always thought that was very interesting. Yes, I would like that. I've got so many Turkey stories. I don't know, I don't know what, which ones to keep under the under the carpet and which ones not to. But but because um, I've been here too long. I mean, I think the point is that certainly you know for. I mean, uh, yes, foreign correspondents have their troubles, um, uh, and we've all had them. Um, I guess my, the, the one story I will tell you was, was, uh, my favorite story is, 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 um, this was sort of in the mid early nineties when the sort of, you know, there was great sort of, sort of civil unrest and almost insurrection in the Kurdish areas of the country. And I was going to, uh, um, a province where they're, you know, they've been villages set on fire and God knows what, and it was, you know, so we went there and it was sort of impossible to do the story. And at the end of the day, I did the story from Istanbul and interviewed people coming off the bus rather than actually try and talk to them on the spot where they would be observed and marched. But at some point I, I, um, I went to a restaurant with the, with a Swedish colleague and we were sitting down and, you know, we had a little luncheon. The bill came and it was just, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was more than I expected. And I, I, you know, I looked at the bill and I said, you know, how come it's so much? And, uh, and the waiter pointed to this guy sitting in the corner who was the man who was following us, you know, who gave us a cheery little wave because he'd put his, his lunch on our bill. Um, but, uh, <laughs> which we were happy to pay, of course. But, but, uh, um, I guess that, that, that's a slightly flippant view. I mean, they're, they're, 
I mean, what we're, you know, what we're concerned about now is that there, you know, I mean, again, it's, I, we, we, I, we speak up on behalf of journalists, but of course, journalists are not even, are not the most numerous as, well, victims of injustice in Turkey, but, but, you know, there are, you know, a hundred odd journalists in jail who don't, shouldn't be there. And of course, with, with COVID, raging both outside the prisons and creeping into the prisons. Um, uh, we were very concerned about them. Um, and uh, there was an amnesty recently to try and, you know, empty the prison, get rid of the pop- a lot, about a third of the prison population. And, and, you know, we've seen, you know, gangsters convicted of murder, getting out of jail, et cetera, et cetera. But someone who writes a column critical of, 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 of this or that is, is, is still inside jail. So, so there, there seems to be a certain vindictiveness um, um, towards dissent. Well, and especially anyone that covers anything that's going on on the eastern border, right? And anything involving the Kurds. Um, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we, what, what, what yes, I mean, uh, has, but of course, it was always thus. I mean, you know, with the Turkey. Turkey always had a I, I mean, I can recall writing a letter, uh, you know, a sort of newsletter for, for the committee, committee to protect journalists, um, um, about, um, journalists in jail. And just as it published, I realized that I was going on trial. <laughs> this was in the, in, in the late nineties. Um, uh, the curse of the CPJ, I used to call it, but, but, um, uh, wait, you were going on trial? Oh, but the, you know, this, this is, this was another, another, this was another time, another place. This was at the end of the nineties when I, I had, I, I was writing for a Turkish language newspaper and they, they, uh, I was deemed to have insulted the military. I mean, they weren't very serious about putting me in jail. They just, uh, um, although it did carry a potential six year sentence. So I, I was, I had to take it seriously, but, but, uh, um, at the time it seemed more of a career move than a, than a real threat. Um, but <laughs> I love that that's an afterthought, though. I mean, it was. I mean, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember going to a friend, uh, the news editor of one of the big television stations, uh, his wedding. Um, and this was just when it appeared on the wires that I that I was going on trial myself. And um, I guess this was ninety eight, ninety nine. I can't remember. And um, um, you know, it, it, it was like I had completed some fraternity hazing ritual. You know, they said, "Oh, you know, they're not, they're not serious about you. If they really wanted to put, you know, do something to you, they would have put you in this court, not that court." You know, and and, and you know, it was like it was like everyone was one upping them about which you know the, the, the trials and tribulations that they had faced. Um, so it, this was, you know, this. You know, it was, it was all. You know, there was always an attempt to use the law to intimidate the media, and 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 mainly it was, it was done through, by keeping the proprietors on a short leash because they they you know if you, if you were too critical of the government, you didn't get your privatization deal, you know, so or your this or that or the other thing. So, you know, it was you know this was always the case in Turkey. Um, but of course now it's become much more intense, much more dangerous, much more, you know, um, uh, you know, it's, I, I can make a joke of my own situation, but I, I certainly wouldn't joke about uh, someone in jail at the moment with, you know, with, with it, where there's, you know, the pandemic raging outside. 
All right, we're going to pause there for a break from our sponsors, such as they are. You're, we are talking turkey. You're listening to War College. We will be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, thank you for sticking with us, listeners. We are talking about turkey. Well, how is the how is the how is the pandemic affected things in Turkey? How are they? How is the state dealing with it? And um, is it better there than it is in the U.S.? Because things are not great here. Well, this is, I understand to be the case. Um, I didn't think anywhere is quite as bad as the United States at the moment. Um, um, maybe India. I'm not quite sure. Um, there, you know, there certainly, there certainly is the virus. I mean, the point is that the government seems fairly confident about its handling of it. And I, and I don't think there's that much public criticism of the way they're handling it. I mean, they have the same, um, what is it, you know, sort of ambivalence that exists everywhere. You know, do you, do you deal with the pandemic or do you deal with the economy? And, you know, how can, you know, how, which, how does one balance that particular seesaw? Um, and, you know, there, there were fairly strict measures, you know, people over the age of 65, of, of which I am in a member of that, 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 that cohort, uh, weren't allowed out at, at a certain point, you know, for, at all, um, for, for several months, I think, although I, because I look much, so much younger, I managed to creep up. Um, but, but, um, uh, or we're allowed out on Sundays, you know, it's like, like, like the, the teddy bear's picnic. Um, uh, and, and, uh, um, young, younger people were also kept. Then there were strange things where, where the, during the week you, you could travel, but at the weekends there was a total lockdown. So there was attempts to slow it down or to do this or to do that. And the, the death rate is, I think there have been about just over 5,000 deaths in a population of about 70, 80 million. So, you know, it, it's bad, but not terrible. The, the, you know, at the moment, I think people are fairly relaxed and then there's, there's a great chance that it'll, you know, the famous second wave will, will erupt. But, um, I, I mean, the, the, there's there's a few things that work in Turkey's favor, or at least these I've, I've heard these arguments, and perhaps they're 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 genuine. Is that 
one, it's a much younger population. Yeah, the mean age in Turkey, I think, is 29 or 30. So, so you know, the, the people who have it are more likely to recover. The second is that there was an explosion in private health care, and because ICU and intensive care units are so, you know, are, are high cost, you know, high earning bits of kit, as it were, in, in the medical profession, there, there's quite a lot of ICU units in Turkey. Um, and so that there is, there's, there was never a question that there would, there would be a shortage. Um, and, um, um, I don't know, but, but, but those are the, 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 the two main, main containing factors. And of course, there are a lot of the deaths elsewhere in Europe, particularly where in all, in, you know, in old age homes and, in, 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 you know, care homes and, and Turks tend to keep their elderly relatives at home, you know, look after them themselves or, or not put them into care. So, so, there was, you didn't have this contagion spreading through, through all people's hands because there aren't that many. Um, um, you know, whether, but of course the economy is going to contract, you know, maybe 5%. It's, it's, um, it's a very, and of course Turkey depends a great deal on tourism. Um, the European Union at the moment is, is saying that Turkey is not a safe destination. Um, um, uh, the UK, I think, is the exception to that. You can travel from the UK, but that, but they're brexiting anyway. Um, uh, and of course, Turkey, you know, it, it depends on its tourism revenues um, uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, the, the, you know, its markets. There's a both domestic and international demand have, have slowed down, and so there's going to be, you know, there's a huge amount of pain. Um, the Turkish economy wasn't doing so great before the pandemic. Um, uh, there, there was the government's been using its foreign reserves to, to keep the currency from, from being devalued uh, completely by, you know, by making it more difficult to deal in liras by selling liras um, uh, on, on the foreign currency, you know, by, sorry, by selling dollars on the foreign currency market. So to stop, Speculation against Leo, but of course the foreign reserves are running down. There, the you know the the it's it's in a very the economy is very fragile. Um, you know maybe things are looking up a little bit from where they were a month or two ago. There's and most analysts don't think there's a you know crisis that's going to hit tomorrow or the next day. But you know I think you know it, it definitely has weakened the economy considerably and. and, and I think that, you know, people are expecting some serious event relatively soon in Turkey. Well, I have to say, you were talking about tourism a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was in Turkey, I guess it's uh, 10, 10 years ago at this point, maybe a little longer. And I just have to say, if you're looking in for signs of the ancient world, um, there's no place like Turkey. Um, Byzantine, Roman Greek, it's just fantastic. Prehistoric. I mean, we, 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 uh, <clears throat> one of the most extraordinary finds in, in, in recent history in Turkey was they were excavating for, for, um, at a metro station that, that, uh, um, a train line that would go under the Bosphorus to connect Europe to Asia and the subway system. Um, and they, the, the thing was held up several years because they, Came across the, the harbors of Byzantium, which um, uh, which were under 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 the water, um, which were sort of no longer under the water, which were under the under the earth. Um, 
But just when they were about to sort of, you know, pack up and say, we've done that and excavated that, they found, you know, remains from when there was no Bosphorus before the Bosphorus had opened straits and opened, which, you know, put, you know, made the city several millennia older than, than people had thought it was um, uh, by, by discovering these, these, these uh, prehistoric graves, um, which, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of, with you know footprints in them as it were, which were so perfectly preserved uh, the, because they um so so it's yes i mean of course um one of the attractions of being here is that is that it's uh it's such a you know interesting place to be historically and 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 uh, of course it's not really boring the politics are right? as messy as they are are not really boring either so both past and present turkey offers quite a bit uh speaking of speaking of uh history and messy politics uh can you give us a little bit of a primer on especially cuz you you you've been there so long and you kind of have this longer perspective um what is turkey's relationship to the kurds on its eastern border and how has it changed where is it now um what's going on well it the, the yes <laughs> I'm glad you asked me a short and easy one. Um, it's well, it's it's deeply ambivalent, of course, is the answer. Um, I mean, the, the, the Kurds are occupy a sort of Bermuda, um, is it triangle or or, yes. or whatever in 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 the. Yeah, with the, with the, all the nations of, of on Turkey's uh, eastern and southeastern borders have Kurdish populations: Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, and Turkey. And uh, each country uses the Kurdish population of its of the, of the people it doesn't like as a, as a weapon against the other. And so, um, you, you know, the, how these these these, these I'm sorry. Can you hear the, the 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 outside my window? There's there's someone selling beans or something. So there's a, a speaker. I don't it's, know it's, it just adds color to the to the uh, to the audio. It's fine. That, 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 that's good. Um, yeah, it, uh, sounds like I'm doing a ventriloquist act. Um, sorry, we were talking about cards. Um, uh, and you know, Turkey has been remarkably unsuccessful over the history of the Republic in, in providing its own Kurdish populations with some sort of reassurance and of their own cultural identity and ethnicity. And, and, and you know, um, was very much keen on assimilating the Kurdish population and therefore its inability to come to terms with its own Kurdish populations meant it wasn't limited its ability to act as a, as a you know, as the, the 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 good uncle, as it were, to, to in the region, because you know how how can you deal with other people's problems when you can't deal with your own? Um, so it was always, you know, it was always a running sore in the in, in in Turkish politics, and you know the the answer which successive governments gave was that the best policy was really to sort of you know. You know, guns, well, not guns, sort of electricity and, and, and prosperity would make Kurds, you know, want to be part of the Turkish Republic and would, you know, cure them of all this, you know, cultural, cultural autonomy nonsense that they, that they had in their heads. But it, it never really seemed to work. Um, uh, so, 
but again, it's it's the situation is more complicated than many people account for. I mean, you say that there's a problem in the southeast and east of the country, but of course, I'm speaking to you from the city which has the largest Kurdish population in the world. I mean, the city of Istanbul. If you think you know, twelve or twenty percent of the population. Between 12 and 20 percent of the population in Turkey are Kurds, you know, in a city of 17 million, you know, they're, 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 that means there's quite a lot of uh, people of Kurdish um, descent and, and ethnicity and origins. Um, uh, and yet, you know, again, Istanbul is not doesn't seem to be a hotspot of unrest. Um, and again, you have a Kurdish minority party in Turkey, which you know, it has made some mistakes, some big mistakes, but it's also done a lot of reasonable things in, in terms of, you know, trying to address a broader audience and trying to impress upon the Turk, uh, the rest of the population that they're trying to solve the Kurdish problem within a democratic format, that it's, you know, it's much better to have this movement inside um, parliament pissing out, as it were, than, than you know, uh, movement who, which, which, which can't, um, whose aspirations will never be recognized or met. But there seems to be, and at a certain point, I think, you know, the government and then Erdogan himself recognized that, you know, there the was time to solve what they call the Kurdish question. And, and you know, there were several overtures were made and uh, the imprisoned leader of the PKK, the principal, Opposition, we have an armed opposition movement in Turkey with Abdullah He was enlisted in trying to sort of negotiate a, a, a settlement and, and, a, and a, a peace prospect. But at, at a certain point, you know, the government found itself losing support, and the, the much, a much better way of winning back that support was to tap into the nationalists, you know, the Turkish nationalist sentiments of its supporters and of the population. Um, it, it, it's now in a sort of de facto um, coalition with an ultra-nationalist party, therefore, you know, the, which is, you know, vehemently opposed to any sort of cultural compromise or compromise at all with, with the Kurdish population. Um, so we find the charismatic, young, charismatic, articulate and quite, you know, I would say quite sensible, you know, uh, leader of this of this Kurdish Leaning ultranational, not sorry, ultranational. This this Kurdish Nationalist Party, the HDP, he finds himself in jail on on bizarre charges. The European Court of Human Rights has said that the, that he was he's being unfairly detained, but so they immediately rearrested him on something else. You know, so it so basically it's, you know it, there's there's a um, there's a lack of the, the, the truth, the, the attempt to solve and come to terms with its own population, Kurdish population, has really been abandoned in Turkey for the time being. Who knows for how long, which which means that it's, you know, it, it's very nervous of autonomous Kurdish entities on the other sides of its border in Syria and Iraq and, and um, does its best to undermine um, the, the, the credibility and integrity of those, those countries, of those um, entities so one last question which is do you think there are lessons from what's happened in turkey the sort of rise of um, i hope you don't mind using the word of authoritarianism or centralization of power do you see any lessons for other countries 
<laughs> anyone one beginning with an A. Um, uh, right. <laughs> Antarctica. Um, yes, I, I, you know, I, I you know, it, 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 the need for constant vigilance is constant. I think, um, um, you know, I, I mean, what we've seen in Turkey is the erosion of liberties of civil liberties and and you know it it's um uh it doesn't happen never night you know at at one point you know this government seemed this party seemed much more liberal and sensible than than it's than it's you know the historic it's its rivals you know it, it was you know um um as i said you know it was prepared to to compromise with with Kurdish politicians at a time when no one else was, but um, you know the, the 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 I think you know once you get a little bit of power, you get a little bit more power and a little bit more power. It's it's incremental, and then it's I think power is very you know it's quite addictive. I suppose it's very difficult to to give it up. Um, um, and and um, you know the, the Especially when when a lot of people are making a lot of money because you you being in power, it's, it's you know even if you wanted to give it up, it's difficult to give up. Um, I mean that's true in the head guy, um, you know, uh, Bashar al-Assad surrounded by his Praetorian Guard in, in Damascus. If he you know if he wanted to to you know and you know retire and move to Florida, I don't think you know I think don't think he's, the people around him would let him. Um, uh, so so it, it you know you get yourself into this corner you you create um the famous bubble you create a sort of echo chamber in which you know you're always right and everyone's always wrong um and 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 um you know very few people eventually people lack the the the, the courage to 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 try and pierce that bubble particularly if it lands them in jail or it gets them into trouble or um so many things so you know, it's it's a it's a it's a very painful process to watch, and of course, um, you know, one trusts in the common sense and decency of ordinary citizens to who who have the sense to to reject that sort of self-aggrandizement and excess, and 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 become disillusioned with it, and that, of course creates its own crisis because, you know, once you've lost legitimacy in the eyes of your own population, then how, you know, what do you do? It's very difficult to, to, to get off the treadmill. Um, so it's, it's, um, I mean, there is no, you know, one lesson to be learned, I think from the Turkish, Turkish experience, but, but, um, it's certainly, um, reinforces the need for constant vigilance. Does that answer your question? (laughs) It does, Andrew. And thank you so much for joining us this week. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week, War College listeners. War College is a production of War College LLC. It is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. We will be Angry Planet very soon. Very, very soon. Same great show, uh, new attitude, new graphics, new music. If you like us and you like what we're doing, think about going to angryplanet.substack.com where we write a weekly newsletter that collects a lot of the defense news that falls through the cracks and also some of our own original reporting. 
Um, you can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.